What is up, wrestling fans? Welcome to the latest episode of the Paul Heyman Smackdown podcast here on the Smile Cam Moment channel, where we're talking about the January 23rd, 2003 edition of Smackdown. And joining me, Callum Wiggins, as per usual, is Robert DeFelice. Well, we went from rumbling to dropping bombshells, brother. Yes, there's going to be, there's going to be a very um, Hulk horrific. I don't know if that's even a term. Uh, it is now. Yeah, uh, main event segment to uh, close off this episode of SmackDown. But uh, before we do that, hopefully, if you're enjoying the series, then why not drop us a like on the video, leave a comment below on your thoughts on this episode of SmackDown or our thoughts on this episode of SmackDown. If you're listening through one of the ratings, well, through one of the podcast feeds, then drop us a rating, leave us a rating on there, leave a review, anything along those lines. Uh, there's a playlist on the YouTube channel, which I'm sure most of you will be watching this on, where you can check out every single episode of the Paul Heyman's Spatdown podcast from start to finish. We're on episode 31 now, so it's been quite the journey so far. Only a few more episodes to go. So hopefully you're tuning in for the rest of it as well. And there is a link in the description for this episode of Smackdown on the WWE Network if you haven't checked it out in advance. With that out of the way, let's talk about some news. Um, wrestling, you're usually not too far away with um, in, when you just talk about wrestling news over time, you're not too far away from talking about a death of somebody and it's kind of a major death it's the death of the original sheik yeah uh, we're not going to go through all of them obviously because their journey ends soon but 2003 was a rough year for wrestling deaths and the original sheik is maybe one of the most iconic performers in the history of wrestling yeah one of the most dastardly hills in his uh era really like someone who was legitimately feared and reviled when he was um, competing, basically going from territory to territory. One of the innovators of hardcore wrestling as well, which obviously was passed down soon to his nephew, Sabu. Yes. Probably the thing that we have most um, links to. The fact that he's referred to as the Sheik or the original Sheik when there's so many Sheiks in wrestling. I think, I think it's the idea that he eventually became like the the original Sheik because of the fact that the Iron Sheik started working as well, even though um, I think the original Sheik started working a good like 20 years before uh, Iron Sheik started. Shows how um like how rude he was in that very like golden age of 50s and 60s wrestling. I think, uh, of course, the term Sheik was a cheap way to get heat back in the day but nobody did it better because even iron sheik even at the time if you look at it is almost like a caricature whereas the original sheik looks like he would murder you you know it's he played his role very well yeah so uh, obviously we can't really go super in depth with it because neither of us were really watching the sheik in his prime or anything like that but i thought it was worth bringing up because he is a wwe hall of famer and uh, a significant part of wrestling history. Um, some more sad news, but more on the released front, is uh, the release of two superstars, Just Incredible and Raven, released from WWE. Raven, they never understood what they had, and I wouldn't be surprised if anybody who worked for WWE in the past wondered why Johnny Polo and Aldo Montoya made it so big. And I'm not, I know we like to get around on this channel about the New Generation era, but it seems like that there's something that would just strike people like, oh, no, these guys are joke characters. That's how I presented them, and that's what they'll always be. Yeah, so it seemed like Raven was getting a little bit of a resurgence because he was appearing on a few episodes of Raw prior to his 
release, but then he was just let go. Uh, he would end up in TNA towards the um, back end of two thousand two, uh, two thousand three, I believe. So yeah, he he goes pretty quickly and has a good run there. Yeah, forms the um was what was his uh first incarnation of the group because obviously it wasn't the flock or anything like that. It was something else. It was something like it wasn't uh, serotonin. That was later. Serotonin's later. It might have just been something as simple as Raven's Nest or Raven's. I almost want to say like the Bowery because he used that a lot. Mm. But uh, yeah. that's where we were introduced to people like CM Punk and uh, Mickey James through that group. Right. And uh, it was CM Punk, Mickey James, and a guy by the name of Julio De Nero. And I don't know if anything ever became of Julio. Obviously, uh, the other two did just fine. Yeah, I, I believe he was um, he was an ECW guy, wasn't he? Before. Yeah, towards the back end. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah, so him and Just Incredible, obviously, Just Incredible, his story is pretty, um, a, a pretty tragic one in the in the grand scheme of things, really. Just uh, somebody who's had to deal with a lot of uh, alcohol and drug dependency issues. Yeah. Yeah. You never like to hear about it, but it's sadly a wrestling trope, especially for some of those ECW guys. Mm. Um, more backstage stuff from, uh, actually, let's talk about two people, obviously we talked about two people released, let's talk about two people that were signed, which is the winners of Tough Enough 3, uh, John Hennigan and Matt Capitelli. Matt Capitelli, another just unfortunate story because yeah. of him losing his life to cancer, but I don't think it's outlandish to say that John Hennigan was the most successful winner in the history of toughness. Yes. Yeah, so John Hennigan obviously would become Johnny Nitro and then John Morrison, as he is now, and obviously would go on to be Johnny Mundo and Johnny Impact and all the other promotions as well. He's a multiple-time world champion anywhere outside of WWE. That's right. I mean, Morrison is one of the biggest draws outside of WWE. He was in that era of, like, Hey, if you're putting the Young Bucks on your card, put Morrison on your card. You know, uh, he was just a great superstar. And thankfully, he came from the Tough Enough system. So Tough Enough can always point to, we gave you Morrison and we gave you The Miz. Yeah, it's it's funny enough that those two that have been so closely linked throughout the WWE careers both came from the same source, pretty much. Um, In different years, obviously. Yes, but... Morrison, I remember it was Capitelli that everybody thought was going to make it. And I think the consensus is, had he been able to, he would have had a big, bigger career. Yeah, obviously, a mixture of injuries early on and then going through, uh, it was a brain tumor, wasn't it? Yes. I, yeah, I believe you had the, those brain tumors twice, actually. So, yeah, it was a, yeah, he beat it once and then yeah. it came again. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's, a, it's a, again, a very tragic story for Matt Capitelli not and completely out of his own hands, really. So, unfortunate. But it's not even like that's not that. It's not because like that's wrestling. It's actually just that's life, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, talk about a bit more backstage news, which is actually quite closely related to the topic of um, this entire series, Paul Heyman. So both Paul Heyman and Brian Gewertz, who are both the head of Rise of SmackDown and Raw, respectively were suspended from the creative teams for one week due to getting into a heated, aggressive <laughs> argument at a meeting. Uh, that's the only way you can describe it, even though I think 
The story goes that Gwerth was ready to throw down. Yeah, so essentially it was a mixture of just that one incident and also the fact that basically Vince and Stephanie and a few other people backstage were getting increasingly frustrated with both of them in terms of their output and in terms of their unwillingness to listen to other people basically saying that they're not going to run with their ideas. Yeah, this is the beginning of the end for Heyman, but I like that the guys were so passionate. I'm sorry, and this comes on the heels of, we're recording this on Thursday, January 21st, and there's a lot of hoopla right now because Undertaker said something about the industry being too soft now. And for me, it's like, I, I miss stories like this where Paul Heyman and Brian Goritz were so passionate that they're ready to fight. Uh, you know, it's like, I wish the creative team was that passionate today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Brian Goritz, we obviously haven't talked about him too much on the raw side of things. It's kind of more considerably known as being like the Rock's favorite writer. I mean, he's the Rock's, like he literally works for the Rock's production company now and even uh, just got a show on NBC about the Rock. So he did very well for himself. But at the same time, he's probably the biggest wrestling writer outside of Vince Russo that anybody can name. Yeah, so he was with um, WWE for from 1999 to 2012 as a writer and then as a creative consultant until 2015. Did he so, leave with The Rock um, after the Cena thing? I don't know. I I, I can only assume so at that point if if the oh. uh, timelines kind of mesh up. But uh, yeah, he wasn't. Um, yeah, so he's no longer there at the moment. So, but wow. uh, but yeah, he was a, a long term employee in terms of the writing capacity. Obviously, Heyman's time on the creative team was far more short lived, as we're just recounting all of it here. But yeah, at the time, they both were not um, appealing too much to. Uh, Vince and Stephanie. It's one of those things that we could go on forever about what happens when it's Stephanie and then it's Hunter. Like, does the creative team for the main roster just become DX or what? Like, Yeah, I, I mean, you have to imagine that with Michaels and Road Dog currently helping now Triple H in the NXT side of things, you have to imagine that that's going to be some route they're going to go down. I mean, I mean it, everyone has their own favorites with that side of things. I think I think Triple H has established a a body of people that he wants to work with in a creative capacity. I imagine that Michaels, Road Dog and William Regal are high up on that. I mean, they even talked about bringing in Undertaker in some sort of capacity to NXT. So, really at some point we could have a legendary staff I hope he doesn't become a trainer because he sounds like, basically, based on that interview, he sounds like he'll be quite the uh, build a type of trainer rather than a Jason. Uh, yeah. yeah. That is fair, but I, I don't know what else anybody would expect from The Undertaker. <laughs> mm. um, one other final piece of backstage intrigue is um, John Laurinaitis was apparently starting to make his plays to become um, the person running the uh, talent relations department which obviously john jim ross was running at the time um, um iconic moment in history you know jr leaves talent relations and john laurinaitis comes in and we get a lot of the same same that we would see in the 2010s you know the 
the guys that all look the same, wrestle the same. Yeah. I, I believe this is the era where creative has nothing for you in terms of that coming to popularity. Yeah. And also the um the John Norris penchant for hiring women who were very good looking but had absolutely no wrestling background whatsoever. Yeah. Which obviously they they were still doing every now and again, but that at least they were trying to train the women up to do well at this point in time. Then it was just John Oronitis's reign is obviously very closely related to the age of the diva search. It's uh, it worked out well for him, <laughs> you know. Like, yeah, he he, he married himself. the mother of someone who was in the diva search. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I like Oronitis. I mean, it's never an easy job, you know. No. Wouldn't want to be the guy who has to tell people, "Hey, you're fired." Who's the head of talent relations now? Or whatever is role they've assigned to Is it, is it not Hunter? I didn't know if it was Hunter. Was it, is it that guy who was on... Who's the guy on NXT that... that um, not NXT. That, well, it was the NXT, like, that documentary... St- um, the Canyon Seaman or whatever? Yeah. So, or is this, like, some, some guy that, like, would appear on things like Total Divas and stuff like that and would be talking to the talent and stuff like oh, that? Oh, Carano. Carano. Yeah, Carano. Carano. Yeah. yeah, he's... I don't know if I if he's in that role, but I don't know if I've liked him based on what I see. But based on what I've seen, it's all reality television, and you can only take that worth so much. Yeah, exactly. I'm just gonna see if I can um, dig it out on here in terms of let's see who who is okay. So Triple H is the head of global talent strategy and development. I would imagine that that means he's got. Uh, William Some sort Regal. of higher and higher end. Yeah, William Regal is the director of talent development. Well, that's good. Um, yeah, Canyon Seaman, as you mentioned, is the senior vice president of talent development, while Matt Bloom is the vice president of talent development. I wonder what that eventually comes down to, like who's getting hired, who's getting fired. Well, yeah, well, essentially it seems to be like a a four-person team of Triple H, William Regal, Matt Bloom, and this Canyon Seaman guy. It's not bad. Like, you got to know if Sean's in there. I mean, that's a pretty good hiring squad. So we're talking about the news now. Let's see what Raw was up to in this uh, battle of the brands. Making uh, some talk- glass shatter. That's what Raw was up to. Uh, not quite yet, but we'll get there soon. Oh. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, we'll uh, talk about the ratings first of all. So SmackDown this week for the uh, 23rd of January 2003. Scored a 4.03 in the ratings, which just narrowly beat Raw's 3.9. So for their uh, 20th of January edition. So closer than it has been in recent times. And we're entering into a period where it's not going to be as smooth sailing for SmackDown in terms of the ratings front as it has been for basically the vast majority of this entire run. Well, I mean, you lose Al Wilson, you lose ratings, pal. Mm. That's how it works. So, what was Raw up to? So, the main event of Raw was Scott Steiner versus Batista. But oh, do we, we start Evolution now? Yeah, what it will be mainly remembered for is it was uh, Steiner was beat down in the match. Like, he won the match by DQ because he was beaten down at the end by Triple H, Ric Flair, Randy Orton, and Batista. So, this is the origin of Evolution. I can't. The, Evolution Triple H, and I've said it several times, aesthetically is my favorite. Triple H. I think he pulled off the suit wearing very well. I prefer this Hunter to the grizzled, I'm going to wear denim and red motorcycles Triple H. I just think that he really came into his own as a promo. We could argue about his matches and his 
like run here. But man, Triple H is on the mic and as a presence, top notch. Yeah, it is a significant moment. Obviously, in most people's eyes, the the biggest stable of the ruthless aggression era is Evolution. So. It's the launching pad for both Orton and Batista to become two of the biggest stars in the company. It gives Flair something, one last big run of his career. And obviously, yeah, Triple H is at the centerpiece of this. So that's how Raw ended. In terms of other stuff that happened on the show, Eric Bischoff invited Stone Cold Steve Austin to make his return at No Way Out. You know, I'm going to mention it on the pay-per-view show, but I'm going to also say it here. The theme song for this event is going to be Evanescence Bring Me to Life. And the fact that they don't use it for Stone Cold Steve Austin coming back to the company after a year never sat well with me. And it's almost unfortunate at this point that Austin's last run is going to be this match with Bischoff and what he does with The Rock at Mania because he could have... He was just getting started. Like, I don't know how old he was when he retired, but I'm pretty sure it was under 40. Yeah. And yeah. he was just, we could have done so much more with Stone Cold Steve Austin. It's quite interesting when you just read through the Observer newsletters when they, it mentions Austin in certain capacities. And there's no inclination at the moment or no belief at this point that Austin's retiring because they're talking about, like, there were sections in the newsletter where they talk about Goldberg because Goldberg will be coming into the company soon. And so they mentioned the fact that, oh, he'll do a program with Austin at one point and then they'll get all that stuff sorted. And just, yeah, there's no there's no assumption at all that Austin is not is not going to be wrestling past uh, March this year. I think Austin's the first guy where they kind of took that precaution of, no, 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 no. You had this incident where you... You faint the day before WrestleMania, you're done. Like, you're doing Mania, and then you're done. So, other things happening. Title change. Uh, William Regal and Lance Storm reclaimed the World Tag Team Championships through from the Dudley Boys after, essentially what happened is that Sean Morley came out and berated them and said that they had to surrender the titles because they cheated to win. Uh, Dudley Boys refused, and so William Regal and Lance Storm came out, beat them up, put Bubba through a table, then Lance, and then uh, Chief Morley forced Nick Patrick, who was in the ring, as like because he had been berated by Morley about the fact that he let the Dudley Boys cheat to win, and so he they forced him to count after Bubba had been, had been put through the table. So it was just like a, a few second long match, as long as it took to count the pinfall. Yeah, Nick Patrick is useful in this role. Um, this is probably big at the time. It's one of those things. It's like. Really, this happened in retrospect. But I like William Regal. I like Landstorm. So, good stuff. Um, RBD defeated Jeff Hardy, and Jeff Hardy attacked him post-match, but refrained from hitting him with a steel chair. So, mm-hmm. they're sowing the seeds of a Jeff Hardy heel turn. That would be very short-lived. Yeah, that won't matter. <laughs> um, Chris Jericho versus Test ended in a no contest when Chris Jericho inadvertently hit Stacey Keebler in the head with a steel chair. Won't hear those words said ever again. Like he took it in the head. Took it in the it head. A, yeah, you, like of, of all things, really, it's just you're gonna hit Stacey anywhere. Like do it on the back, and maybe this, you know, honest to God, with the mindset that they had back in those days, maybe they thought if you hit her on the back, probably would cause more damage because of how light her frame was. And the other thing that I thought would note was um. Teddy Long gave a speech about 
Martin Luther King Day and The Man, excluding D'Lo Brown from the Royal Rumble. Uh, Brown then defeated Tommy Dreamer in a Singapore Kane match. I like D'Lo. Yeah, I, I always thought he could have done more. Impact and color commentator. He sure is. I, I liked him better as a wrestler, I'll say that. Uh, D'Lo's the man, Teddy Long is good. I think that they never... He became such an iconic general manager, but I think that they never let Teddy Long run as a manager because he had the vocal chops to do it. So that's right out of the way. So we move on to SmackDown, January 23rd, 2003, uh, the Pepsi Arena in Albany, New York. That's one of my favorite soft drinks. How about you? Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Pepsi Max guy. All right. That's uh, my go-to soft drink. I don't know, uh, for, for the longest time during my, my like kidhood and um, early teens, I was a big Diet Coke drinker. And then and then I switched to like uh, Diet Pepsi after that, and then it's been a battle between Coke Zero and Pepsi Max for me basically ever since. Huh. I, uh, I'm straight regular Pepsi, straight Coke. Love it. Love cola. It's one of my favorite things in the world. So it's an interesting opening to SmackDown. Um, so we open with Stephanie McMahon in her office saying yeah. it's a very special edition of SmackDown because The Undertaker is back in action. And then she talks about how Bischoff invited Steve Austin to Raw and how she has a bottom shelf at home to show off later on in the show. And then she just leans forward. It's very sexualized, right? Yeah, she just exposes her massive cleavage. Yeah. And she just tells fans to stay tuned for a big surprise. So she, we're not going to talk about her doing this repeatedly, but she does do, they do do this occasionally on episodes of SmackDown going forward, which is just a shot of Stephanie t- talking about what's going to happen in the show and stuff like that in some sort of weird sexualized position, whether it's bending over the desk or sitting on the desk with her legs folded over and stuff like that. It's, it's just... It seems like they really got their viewpoint of women in power from cheap porn. It really does sometimes. Like, I mean, maybe. I think it's also just due to the fact that, well, you, we have always. Stephanie McMahon was ridiculously hot in 2003. I she was, she was ridiculously hot. I think Stephanie McMahon still looks great today. But oh, yeah, nobody does that you know what i mean like even if you're attractive you're not like doing that i, I don't know it's no it, 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 yeah it is it is very like obvious what they were trying to do with that stuff so that it's not like it can be subverted in any way or some sort of, there's some sort of nuance to it no it's just like oh stephanie's got big tits let's show off her big tits let's uh, yeah, <laughs> use that as yeah. some sort of hook to bring people more more people in um we move on from that into the first match of the uh show which is Chris Benoit versus Charlie Haas. A wrestling match to kick off a wrestling show. You love to see it. Yeah. So Chris Benoit fresh off his match at the Royal Rumble. He's getting a good ovation because you would do after that epic contest. Obviously if you're part of the Patreon, if you're at the ten dollar tier or above, hopefully you've checked out our review of the Royal Rumble. If not, then it's worth signing up for because Tony joins us for it as well. So you get to hear his faults and that as well. And yeah, it's one of the greatest wrestling matches in Royal Rumble history. Yeah, and just in WWE history too. Like, it's a yeah. great, great match. Um, So this is where we're introduced to the um, team angle jacket and 
tracksuit bottoms, like the jumpsuit combination. I would really like to own one of those. Uh, Chalkline, I don't know if they're working on it, but they should because it's good luck. Uh, so there's a lot of the hold exchanges and counters early on. Uh, Benoit wins most of them because they play up the fact that he's got a lot more experience in the ring than Haas at this point. Um, Benoit knocked Haas to ringside, but a slight distraction by Benjamin allows Haas to land a cheap shot, then drive Benoit wrist first into the steel steps. That's so specific. I love it. Yeah, so Haas is targeting the hand and wrist of Benoit, doing a lot of hybrid extension and finger stretches. I think at this point, it becomes a bit too rest hold heavy. The crowd starts to get a little bit jaded. Like right. It's the first match of the card, and the, the crowd is already seemed pretty dead for out a lot of this one, which is never a good sign. Yeah, but what do you expect when you get these two guys in the ring? They're going to take it slow and make the people work for you know the eventual crescendo of the match. What I do love is because Benoit's taken so much damage to his wrist, is when he makes a comeback, he first hits a DDT, which Benoit very rarely ever hit. And then he fights back while selling his arm, so he's not using his left arm at all during this thing. He hits one released German suplex because he can't hold on for the three times. And then he does manage to get up to that. He dives three quarters of the ring again and hits this diving headbutt. Like, he is leaping further and further each time, it feels like, at this point. Yeah, and uh, we're always going to asterisk next to Benoit doing a headbutt. But the man did it well. I And... Like, I don't know what else to say at that point, because it's like, I'm reviewing the content, I know what happens, but at mm. the same time, the man did it well. So, Benoit applies the crossface, but Haas just strikes him on the hand, and he has to break it, because obviously, he's been working on the wrist the entire thing, so that's, again, really good storytelling in this match. And then, he hits a belly-to-belly uh, -belly throw, uh, Haas then goes for a German suplex, but Benoit wraps his legs around it, rolls through... And then scores the pinfall victory. So Benoit gets a bit of a sneaky pinfall win here because he can't win through his traditional means because his hands all messed up. But that really works out. And Benoit is the best of that. Benoit and Bret Hart were so good at doing the roll-up thing well. Yeah, so this was a, a good match. I think it got a bit slow in the middle, but it told a consistent and good story throughout it. Although I will mention something about the the particular body part that they aim for later on in this show, but uh, we'll get to it. Um, what I'll get into now is Undertaker driving his motorcycle backstage. It's big mean Mark. Broom, broom. Yeah, just just him yeah. just riding his Did motorcycle. Did you know that he was the conscience of the WWE and that he's the best pure striker? Because if you don't, I'm sure if he doesn't yeah. tell you, somebody else will. Yeah, so we move on to the next match. So we're getting a lot of wrestling down early on here. Uh, Rikishi versus Bill DeMott, because it was so good last week. Um, I got nothing. I mean, Rikishi's great. Bill DeMott isn't. <laughs> like... Well, I think there's quite interesting psychology in this match, and maybe not so much in the good way. But um, So they announced early on, as we discussed earlier, there's going to be the Tough Enough Season 3 finale after SmackDown on MTV. I, do you think it was odd that they didn't promote anything to do with Tough Enough on SmackDown in the build-up to it? I mean, maybe they did, and we they cut it out because we obviously were only seeing the network version, but... The only think... thing I ever saw regarding Tough Enough was at the end of the show, the credit shot in the corner says, tune into MTV for Tough Enough. Mm. Yeah, you would have thought they'd probably a little bit more 
just because it's not like there's any real conflicting issue because UPN and MTV were both part of the Viacom family, so there's no real competition there. It just feels odd that they wouldn't be showing more clips of Tough Enough or more giving us more updates about what's happening in the meantime. But maybe that's just a sign that it was close to death in terms of an MTV and, product. Because they were on MTV for a while with Heat too, weren't they? This is still in the era where I think Heat so, yeah. is on MTV. I think that they're going to switch everything over to Spike soon. And the ironic thing is, again, Vince McMahon, like I said, bad business decision, just uh, didn't have the foresight he wishes he could have. They wanted Tough Enough on Spike. He said no. They were done with Tough Enough. They asked his permission to run the Ultimate Fighter. He said sure. And the UFC became the biggest thing in the world. Mm. So, so Demont is wearing a cast on his left hand or wrist because he suffered a bit of nerve damage during the Royal Rumble match, like during his elimination. Uh, two star brawling in the corner. Uh, Demont chugs Rikishi in the corner, talks trash at him because, yeah, that's the way that he wrestles at this point. Uh, Rikishi then squashes Demont in the corner, goes after his injured wrist, and there's the one thing that really caught my eye in this match is Rikishi is working like a heel in this match. Yeah. And I don't get it. <laughs> like, Maybe I kind of get it because he, he lost to Demott recently and he's, Rikishi's been on a bit of a losing streak recently. But he showed a lot more aggression in this one. And if it was against any other, if it's against like a more like sympathetic person, I'd kind of understand, okay, maybe they're returning Rikishi heel, he's just getting a bit frustrated. But it's against Bill Demott, and you're never ever going to get someone to be sympathetic towards Bill Demott. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. This is, I haven't watched next week's episode. Uh, are we done with Bill Demott here? No, we're not done with Bill Demott here. In uh, fact, this would have been a we're not really even done good with Bill Demott versus Rikishi yet. This would have been a really good way to end Bill Demott. Yeah, because so he, Demott, the heel, then tries to start making a one-armed com- comeback on Rikishi, uh, but Rikishi keeps cutting him off. Uh, Demott hits a spine buster, gets a little bit of a reprieve, but then he misses a charge in the corner. He eats a savat kick. Then Rikishi hits the rump shaker and pins him. And he puts his arm... Puts, he puts, puts the, the arm... That's what I said, like, that, that, that's it, write him off. He, yeah. f- he fucking squashed the arm. Mm. That's it, like, I like it. Yeah, so, so there's no dancing, there's no stink face in this match, just Rikishi was just all business and pretty aggressive in this match. Do you think they regret having him dance? I no. mean, like, no. I, at this point, I'm sure he doesn't, because it made him more money than anything else in the world. But, like... We have seen what Samoans can do when they drop the smiles and start beating the shit out of people. Yeah, but we saw what Rikishi could do in that thing, and it wasn't good. In fairness, though, he had to try to say he tried to kill a man. Yeah, I know. Wasn't great. You know what else isn't great? No, but I think his gimmick was great. What's not great? Uh, Nathan Jones. Uh, Yeah, so we have that same Nathan Jones promo from the Royal Rumble where they talk about him being in prison and how... He was such a violent inmate that they basically had to review the entire uh, Australian prison system in order to keep him contained in solitary confinement. I love that this is really like, so fuck yeah, the world wrestling uh, entertainment wants to hire you. So we've got a bit of a time now between the uh, until the next match. There's quite a few like little promos and interview segments to go on. In, so just try and rattle through these really quickly. So Josh Matthews interviews Big Show about Undertaker's return. Because, obviously, Big Show is the one that took Undertaker out. 
Uh, not waiting for the question to finish. Show grabs Matthews by the head, holds him in place for a few seconds, and then lets him go and walks away. Matthews, they're so much meaner to him than they were to Mark Lloyd, and that's just not fair. I guess it's because, I mean, he was a former wrestler, so maybe they feel like they can get away with it more. Maybe, but, you know, Mark Lloyd was there. This is a fun backstage segment. Uh, Matt Hardy talks to Shannon more about screwing up in the Royal Rumble, about how he didn't manage to catch Hardy when Lesnar hit the F5, and he basically just blames more for not winning the Royal Rumble. Uh, Matt says he has a lot to learn. He wants to get pumped to give Nunzio a match adjustment later tonight. But then uh, Matt Hardy manages to see Nunzio down the corridor. He walks up to Nunzio, who's just training and preparing, and then uh, he says that he wants uh, Nunzio to teach Shannon more a lesson instead. Uh, Nunzio then tells a story about a cousin of his who was always caught shoplifting, and Nunzio had to bail him out again and again until he had enough snaps, attacked him, and said that net like basically taught him a lesson in the quote unquote family way, and now he never shoplifted ever again. A couple of things here. One was that cousin Jamie Noble. Two. Is the Nunzio family way better than the Gypsy way? Uh, check out all the uh, whenever the Bond series does start coming out. You go check that kill. one. Out. Uh, that particular joke will make more sense in two weeks. Yeah. Um, so Hardy says that he wants Nunzio to give Shannon more an attitude adjustment. Nunzio says that it would be his pleasure. So Matt Hardy is essentially playing both sides at the moment. Wow, that's not like Matt Hardy at all. Uh, I, and I like Matt. Matt. Yeah, is... Matt's great. So good, and he's only gotten better with age. Yeah, in I, fact, I think he's one of the people who genuinely has, in terms of a personal life and on the mic standpoint, gotten better with age. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Again, I would never say too many of bad words, Matt Hardy. Obviously, he had his his demons and his low points in his life, but he overcame them. And yeah, I think that overall, he's been one of the over the past would be thirty years, probably. There's thirty years or so at this point it's just he is a shining beacon of just how to try and get characters over and reinventing yourself so yeah good good on that uh then there's this weird thing where tony chimmel just is in the ring and he announces that stephanie's big surprise is still to come and later on we're gonna have kurt angle versus Rey mysterio you know what would have been awesome if stephanie's big surprise was just like it's Brock Lesnar, you know, like something yeah. stupid because they're really hyping this up. So Undertaker gets on his bike again and he revs it up. He's wearing a big red, big evil bib. I don't. <laughs> I think you called it a bib. Um, a bib. It's like a, like yeah. a little baby bib or something. <laughs> you know, uh, as I mentioned, that this is my least favorite Undertaker because it because real men really wear is. bibs. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Undertaker, he gets in the ring, cuts the pro, says that he didn't want to waste time talking and he wants more time kicking ass because he's a real man. A man's man. <laughs> Crusty old man. Yeah. <laughs> see, that's what I'm saying. Like, you can tell anybody who is shocked by his comments has not watched this Undertaker because he clearly lets you know. He says that he has revenge on his mind and he wants a piece of somebody tonight. They show a recap of Big Show uh, tossing Taker off the stage back in October. Taker says he's going to give Show the opportunity to approach him face-to-face and get his ass kicked. But if he doesn't come out now, Taker will go back there and get the job done himself. Uh, Big Show does eventually arrive on stage. 
says that he could deliver an even more devastating beating to Undertaker tonight. But as show like gets his jacket off and he's ready to go down there, does the classic, oh no, I'm not going to go down there and accept your challenge tonight. I have a contingency plan. And instead, it's going to be the A train coming down. I wish that some of these wrestling tropes would just cease to exist. What, the tease? Like, yeah, like, oh, I'm coming works down there, but once, no, I'm not actually. But- like it's gotten to the point now where people are meta about it. It's like, ha ha, I know what you're actually doing. I, I don't I, mind those things like happening every now and again. It's just they happen too often. So it's not a case of, like I don't want this trope to quote unquote die. I just want it to happen, you know, twice a year. I would like it to not die permanently, but just go away for a while. Yeah, it needs to yeah. go away for a while. It's been it's been too too. It's been long, used far too much in recent years. So we have the Undertaker versus A Train. So Adrian splashes Taker in the corner, drops him with a clothesline. He applies a bear hug for a while, but Undertaker punches his way out. Then Taker lands the flying clothesline, hits a big boot for two. He then beats up Adrian at ringside, does that huge leg drop across the apron, then uses old school as well. So we've basically seen like the greatest hits of the Undertaker in this match. Um, Great way to reintroduce a character. Yeah, hits choke slam, but Adrian kicks out at two, and they kind of sell it as like. Oh my god, he kicked out the choke slam. Whoever kicks out the choke slam, like everybody. Yeah. Pretty much like it's Undertaker's signature move. It's not his finishing move. It's like when they do like Rollins does the stupid Falcon Arrow thing. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh my god, he's never beaten anybody with it. What are you getting all upset about? So A Train throws Taker off the last ride um attempt, but then he misses a big splash. He does manage to hit the derailleur, but he only gets two for that. Uh, Taker then avoids the snake eyes by pushing A-Train to the corner and then forces him to tap out to the taking care of business, which is, yeah. the, which is the dragon sleeper for normal people. Didn't, didn't work out, did it? <laughs> no. Um, Undertaker always tried to do things with submission holds eventually. Eventually he would get the Hell's Gate. I like, like the, for, what I'm, for what it's worth, I like the dragon sleeper a lot. Just a dumb name. I mean, the the issue with Undertaker's Dragon Sleeper is the fact that he can't do a lot with it because he's not very flexible. Fair. So I've seen I've seen people do Dragon Sleepers where you like you grapevine the body of the person while you're applying it, and that looks so much more devastating than Undertaker's one, which essentially oh A Train just leaning back slightly. So a couple things I noticed in the crowd: there's a young man wearing a clown wig, and I wonder if it's Frank the Clown. Yeah, at like a very young age, but outside of that, Callum, you know why our favorite Undertaker is the one that will come about three or four years from this point? Because he has started matches. putting, yeah, they started playing him in the ring with people who could work. My God, so much. Hey, of this you're talking about the head trainer of NXT right now. I, uh, but granted, but big man, he's doing the slow plotting big man thing that they probably want to teach all the other big men how to do. It's like, I, I don't care for these matches. I can rattle off a bunch of them. They always put Taker in the ring with Mabel and Giant Gonzalez and Albert's significantly better than them, but it's still the plotting big man match. And that's why when he gets in the ring with, you know, Kurt Angle at No Way Out in three years. It's going to feel like I, like a revolution. So after that match, we see a, a Sean O'Hare promo, number Devil Advocate's, uh, Devil's Advocate promo. 
He says the people are a slave to the government and they shouldn't pay their taxes because paying taxes is un-American. And if the government's not going to do anything for you, so then why should you pay them any money? Essentially, that was uh, like his whole thing of like, yeah, we get tracks forward. Well, we recently let go of a president, but never mind. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that government definitely didn't do anything for you. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah at this point, at this point, it's George Bush. So I guess, I guess, I mean, it seems quite odd that he'd be that a Vincent Mann driven character, I presume, would be saying that sort of thing against George Bush. I assume government. Vince just hates the government. Mm. Um, let's talk about Edge versus Shelton Benjamin. I'd love so, to talk about Edge versus Shelton Benjamin. This match is this match shows what they had with Shelton Benjamin, mm-hmm. and they have with Shelton Benjamin because Shelton Benjamin is working now, and he's still he's obviously he's, he's still not, very good. Yeah, he's still very good. He's obviously not as I guess sprightly as he was back here, but at this point, you just watch this match and feel okay. They've really got something with this guy. And they've got some with Huss as well, but Huss is a bit more like technical. I mean, he fit Benoit a lot more. more. Benjamin is a bit more bombastic. That's fair. Um, Shelton Benjamin, I think, I don't want to say that this was the match, because I'm sure there will be other matches. But oh, I know what the match was. The match is Triple H. But there's that too. <laughs> but uh, this is the match that maybe put him in that position, because you're looking at him and you're like, Oh, we got a fucking workhorse here. This is the yeah. guy. Like, Shelton Benjamin should have been the guy. Honestly. So, Edge starts out early. He's, like, spinning heel kick, swinging net breaker. But Benjamin takes over with a nice German suplex, followed by a bow and arrow stretch with bending Edge across the ring post. Cool. Uh, Benjamin starts throwing a few, few suplexes, butterfly suplex, few takedowns. He's toying with Edge. But then Edge escapes Fireman's carry, hits an Edge-O-Matic. Uh, he tries the execution, but Benjamin escapes that, hits a clothesline, and then he applies a straight jacket camel clutch, which essentially is like he's got his arms tied over Edge's mouth while applying the the camel clutch. Basically, it's it's a it's a good move to just want to make the guy choke himself out. It's a good, it's a very good move. I think more people should use maneuvers like that because you're using the opponent's momentum against him, and it looks like you're being even more devious. Um, Edge gets to his feet, he throws Benjamin over, hits a belly to belly, and makes a comeback, does the face plant. Uh, he goes for a spear, but Benjamin leapfrogs Edge through the spear. Uh, Edge knocks Huss off the apron, but blocks a super kick, but then Benjamin does undoubtedly my favourite ever Benjamin move, which is the blocks super kick into a spinning leg lariat. Yep. That is the greatest move that Benjamin... Benjamin should have beaten people with that move. I think in a different era, he would have. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just, so, it's just so good. Uh, Benjamin goes for a springboard crossbody, but Edge ducks this, uh, bounces off the ropes, hits the spear, gets the victory. So obviously, the more established guy wins. It was a fun sprint between these two, though. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, watching this series back, I really regret that Edge didn't get to do WrestleMania 19 and 20. I mean, you have to assume that WrestleMania 19, he would have been teaming with Benoit instead of Rhino. And how much better would that match have been? I'm sorry, but like... you well, would have been better. I think it would have been better if you just, you know, gave it time rather than had it rushed in about like 10 minutes or whatever it was. I, but I mean, like you put Edge and Benoit against Los Guerreros, against Team Angle. You talk about the ladder matches that they were going to have. Like, they were doing some pretty fun stuff. 
So after this loss, Kurt Angle is backstage berating Team Angle, saying that they represent him every time they step out in the ring and their responsibilities don't include losing. Uh, he asks if they understand what Team Angle stands for. Benjamin, like, sheepishly raises his hand up and Kurt Angle says, put your put your hand down. He just like, <laughs> doesn't want to listen to that. Um, uh. they, yeah, says they stand for the three eyes. He said that Haas had no intensity and Benjamin had no intelligence in their matches. Uh, Angle tells them to just sit right there and watch him defeat Rey Mysterio tonight. Uh, Angle says he embarrasses them and it'd be even more embarrassing if he lost to Mysterio tonight. He's not saying that like, Team Angle's not going home free tonight. So, I, I, some people would look at that and say like they're already showing animosity between the team. I think it's just a coach that's just angry at his players. Yeah, it's not like they're looking to split them up. It's what... Kurt Angle should do. He should be mad at them. But also, we're talking with the benefit of hindsight, knowing that they don't split them up here. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, if we were watching it live, there would be genuine concern. Mm. Uh, cruiserweight action. Nunzio against Shannon Moore. Uh, we're immediately into the action, so it's like off that backstage promo, we're just straight into the match. No entrances or anything like that. Uh, some quick exchanges. Moore makes the like V1 sign. He's trying to impress Matt Hardy at every opportunity. Uh, Nunzio catches more in the corner, drops him hard on his face. He sends his arm into the ring post repeatedly. Um, Nunzio, again, focusing on the arm. This is the third match of the entire night where someone has been targeting the arm. It's a bad night to have an arm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I guess with Nunzio, it makes sense because basically most of his offense is arm associated. Um, Nunzio connects with a Sicilian slice for two. Uh, more then hits a springboard leg lariat to escape the onslaught by Nunzio. Hits a running net breaker. Crowd starts shouting for ECW because they know who Guido is. Because of course they do. It's it's Albany, New York, so of course they're chanting for ECW. Uh, Moore does a tumbleweed, which is just like this crazy spinning dive out of a corner. But rather than go for the cover, he tells Matt Hardy that uh, I'm going to hit the twist of fate, and Hardy's like, okay, go ahead and do it. Uh, naturally, Nunzio reverses this into the Arabidurchi and pins him. So, ah, yeah. So Moore continues to lose. He tried. Yeah, he tried. Uh, Hardy enters the ring. He looks furious. Moore just runs away to escape any punishment for his mentor. Then Hardy just goes back into the ring. He shakes Nunzio's hand. Just like, good job. Thanks for beating up my mf for me. That's ridiculous. You did what I told you to do. Good job. Um, They recap Lesnar winning the Royal Rumble. And then Lesnar has a seated promo to the camera talking about how he's goal-orientated. And then he lists all his accomplishments so far. Uh, Lesnar's not a good promo. He can be. He's hit or miss. I don't think he's a good WWE promo. I've seen stuff that he did in the UFC. If he's allowed to just talk, he's good. Yeah. But, uh, this one is just like, it's very wooden. And he talks about how his two most recent goals were to beat the Big Show and win the Royal Rumble. And now his goals are to F5 Paul Heyman and to beat Kurt Angle at WrestleMania. He would do both of those things, spoiler. Yeah. You know? Uh, Mysterio puts on his mask in the corridor, which seems very haphazard for him. And just as a yeah. door, just putting his mask on in the middle of an open space where there could be tons of people walking through. Uh, uh, you he... know, it, maybe he had to do something. Maybe he had to find a new mask. So he starts walking towards the ring, but he has to sidestep to avoid a, a, a sprinting Shannon Moore who leaps into a production crate. You see Matt Hardy is in pursuit. He checks all the rooms to try and find more. He sits on the production crate that Moore's hidden in and just is saying that it's only going to be worse for you, Shannon, if when I find you, if you keep running. And yeah, so they're just, again, this this 
I don't know how you describe it, really, this very brutal mentor and student relationship. Continue. So far, so good. And as subtle as it is, still sowing seeds. Uh, main event in terms of in-ring-wise, Kurt Angle versus Rey Mysterio. So you know already, strap in. This is going to be fun. Yep. And, yeah, it proved to be a lot of fun. Um, you do the thing early on with Mysterio, like outspeeding and outmaneuvering Angle early on with like some kicks and head scissors. But then he's caught with a sit-out powerbomb. And I don't think I've, before or since, ever seen Angle use a sit-out powerbomb. I think there's certain moves you can get away with when you're doing them against Rip Yeah, that's basically what I was thinking as well. I was just like, okay, you can try this out because this guy is so much more than you are. Uh, he takes over with strikes to Mysterio. Uh, he does a German suplex that practically spikes Rey Mysterio on the back of his head. Yeah. Mysterio's just coming back from knee surgery. And, uh, yeah, they just dropped him right on the back of his head. So, that replay was... Yeah, it was nasty. I think it's just a case of, like, when it becomes, like, a routine for Angle, just throwing guys that are a bit bigger than Rey Mysterio, when you do get someone like Mysterio size, you're going to get so much more rotation. So, yeah, that was that was scary. Um, Mysterio escapes a headlock with Norman Light suplex, then the springboard crossbody, spinning heel kick. Uh, Mysterio drives between Angle's legs, thrusts him in the corner with some kicks. Um, Angle then launches Mysterio up towards the corner. He lands on the middle rope. Here's a diving head scissors, sends Angle to the floor. They do the spot from SummerSlam where the referee's trying to stop Mysterio from diving over, so Mysterio instead dives over the referee onto Kurt Angle on the outside. I like, again, to put these guys in the ring, I would like to have a match today. I bet they could still, they might still be able to. It depends on how Angle feels. Yeah. Uh, Mysterio drops the dime, gets two count. Angle avoids Mysterio charging the corner by flipping up. Um, sends Angle to the ring post. Mysterio, um, Angle then dodges the springboard moonsault, applies an ankle lock. And Mysterio escapes this, then walks into a belly-to-belly throw. Uh, Angle goes to the angle stand. He arm drags out of it. He tries 619, but Angle catches him in the ropes. Mysterio lands on his feet from a slam attempt then bounces off to the ropes into a wheelbarrow bulldog. And you get the classic Kurt Angle very long two count. Because he's the best. Yeah. Uh, the finish is awesome. Uh, so Angle catches Rey Mysterio going for the West Coast pop. And when Mysterio goes for, like, he sets himself up, he, he catches him on his shoulders. Um, Mysterio transitions to try and get into a victory roll position. Uh, Angle drops him head first on the top turnbuckle, hits an electric chair in the same motion, and then falls backwards in one, like, swift, fluid motion into an immediate pin. So Angle essentially beat Rey Mysterio with a, full, a, f- a forward and then reverse electric chair. Love it. Yeah. Just doesn't win it. Yeah, it's like winning with moves that aren't your finishing move all the time. It's do that now and again. And I'm not saying like, it's not a roll-up. I mean, it is a roll-up pin, but it wasn't the roll-up that beat Mysteria. Yeah, and it's not like... How do I put this? It's not, hey, let's just do a quick roll-up. Hey, you're winning with moves that isn't your finisher. No, it's... Like, clever. It's related to the match. Yeah, it was a hard-hitting sequence that anyone would probably get pinned by. Yeah, so it worked for me. Big um, Angle then, for some reason, is frustrated, and so he applies an ankle lock to Mysterio just to do some more damage until Edge comes in and chases him away. Angle walks up the ramp cockily, but Benoit appears on stage. He charges down Angle, throwing him into the ring. Michael Cole brings up on commentary repeatedly that he asked Team Angle to stay backstage. So that's why Team Angle aren't coming out to help him. 
So Benoit hits a German, Edge hits a spear, another Benoit German. They set him up. He gets hit with a 619. And yeah, they just spend a while doing a three-on-one beat down to Kurt Angle. Do you wish that they would have just pulled the trigger on Mysterio in the main event scene here instead of, you know, three years down the line? No, because I just don't think there's a place for him there right now. I mean, he's great, obviously, and there's no doubt, and he could have pulled I mean, it off there. I mean, but he could have done the edge roll or the, you know, like, yeah, he could have done the edge roll back when edge goes down. Yeah, he could have done that, absolutely. But, I mean, right now, the main event scene, and there's obviously with the help of hindsight, we know that the main event scene is essentially for the next several months, it's Brock Lesnar, Kurt Angle, and the big show. Yeah. And there's practically no real breaking through that glass ceiling at this point. So I don't think Mysterio would have had much of a place in there. I think giving him the Cruiserweight title and letting him run with that and add some prestige to that belt was a better way for him to go for the time being. That's her. Um, uh, Stephanie is on her giant laptop. That thing was huge. It was like a... like <laughs> They did really used to look like that. It's yeah. so crazy how much we've downsized. Uh, Funaki enters her office. Uh, he wants to know what her big surprise is. Stephanie teases that he she doesn't understand what he's saying, but then says she's just messing with him. Because, huh? Racism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Stephanie, says, star, kids. Stephanie says that her surprise is not a what, but it's a who. And Funaki and everyone will have to find out what it is next. So she ushers Funaki out of the office and then stares at a very conveniently placed poster of Hulk Hogan. Why would you... Well, I, I, assume, wrong, I like... assume it was going to break. So I assume that was the thing, and then it was going to break. And then so people who might have been like, okay, that match's happened, I'm at you now, now. They just see that and go, oh, my God, Hulk Hogan's coming. Or they might say, hey, guys, or call up their friends and say, oh, my God, she's, I think Hulk Hogan's coming back, and then maybe get people to tune in for the final. What would end up being two quarters? I guess so, but they still could have done it better. So Hogan's fake WWE Network music plays. The crowd goes crazy. At this point, just pipe in Real American. Mm. And they give him like a sustained ovation during this long entrance. So without any like hyperbole or anything like that, this uh, standing ovation uh, lasts for about seven or eight minutes. Because Hulk Hogan... <sighs> it's Hulk Hogan. Yeah, it's like, it's genuinely like, listen, he's a shitty person outside the ring. And I get that. But it's genuinely upsetting for me that, like, some people will only ever know Hulk Hogan as the shitty old wrestler guy. Instead of just knowing, like, this is what being a fucking superstar is. Hulk Hogan is legitimately the biggest wrestling star, and it sucks that more people don't know it. Or won't experience it, I should say. So they come back from commercial, like they they leave commercial with Hogan just like waiting for the crowd to die down, and like he comes back and they're still cheering Hogan. Hogan's getting like visibly emotional about how just how much love and appreciation he's being showed. Uh, Hogan finally gets to speak and he announces he's just signed a new contract with WWE. Yeah, yeah, that's the big news. Uh, it says he's got a lot of unfinished business as well as a lot of new business with fresh faces backstage. And he says he'll do it the right way with the red and yellow on and every fan behind him. You know, the ironic thing is, you mentioned a lot of new faces. We ain't going to see a lot of new faces in this run. We're going to see a lot of old ones. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so Hogan says this might be their last journey together, but he won't let them down this time. Just saying, like, they're going to fight the forces of evil and come out on top. I love that. It's like, who cuts promos like that anymore? Like, mm. nobody. Well, speaking mm. of forces of evil, Vincent Mann's music hits. And Ugh. he looks absolutely bewildered to see Hulk Hogan in his ring. <laughs> he is the best method actor in WWE history. Yeah, he is. No, no shadow, word of a lie. There is nobody that pulls off any sort of facial expressions or throws himself into his character more than Vincent Mann ever did. Right. Uh, they stare each other down in the ring. A man grabs the mic saying that he arrived to see what Stephanie's big surprise was. And he is so unbelievably disappointed. He then kind of like berates Stephanie for just saying, like, why would you bring Hulk Hogan back? Saying it's not 1985, it's 2003. And that Hulkamania, like Al Wilson, is dead. (laughs) Just mocking supposedly an actual dead person. By God, Vince McMahon is... He is such an anomaly. I would love to meet him one day just because he's such an anomaly of a human being. Yeah, he is a one-of-a-kind evil genius. Yeah. Uh, crowd chants arsehole at Vince. Uh, Hogan says this might be his last WWE comeback and the first person he wants to kick the hell out of is Vince. Vince's expression is, like, priceless because you try and see him, like, control his fear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Vince then asks Hogan who the hell he thinks he is. Vince says he doesn't answer to Hogan, the fans, or the man upstairs. Mm. Which I guess has been proven time and time again. Sowing the (laughs) seeds for his eventual feud with God. I love it. Yeah, He only answers to himself. Hogan then punches Vince in the head, ripped his shirt, throws it onto the fallen Vince. Like a dazed and angry Vince stares at Hogan. He's posing on the ramp as the show closes, and so... That's the first signal for their eventual WrestleMania match. Now, I'm sure that maybe like 99 or 2000 has it beat here, but is 2003 the most we see Vince wrestle on pay-per-view? I would say that, honestly, I think there's a few years that have it be, maybe like 2099. I mean, 2003, so he wrestles Hogan at WrestleMania. He wrestles a few times on SmackDown. So he wrestles... We're supposed to have a match with Lesnar in the steel cage, which turns out to be a big screw job. He wrestles Stephanie, obviously. He wrestles Zach Gowen. Um, wrestles Undertaker. Yeah, wrestles Undertaker. I think they're kind of like the big five. There might be a few other ones like scattered in there, but they're like the five main ones. But I think... Um, I mean, in 2006, he wrestles Michaels and Triple H a lot. Like in uh, 2007, he wrestles. He's obviously ECW champion, so he wrestles he like Bobby Lashley a few times. Yeah. So I think but I have obviously like the Attitude Era might have it. Yeah, the Attitude Era might is obviously like the, the the most likely one. But I think I wouldn't be surprised if 2006 was his most active year in the ring. I would not be surprised at all. Um. Yeah. So that's how they closed the show. So it's a good angle to close the show. Return of Hogan. But they put their wheels in motion for that WrestleMania clash. There's like some good wrestling involving all of Team Angle. So yeah, I think overall pretty satisfied with this show. I would I would say that this is a great way to come back from the 
Uh, Royal Rumble. Yeah. So on the road to no way out now, and obviously there was no, not even any sign whatsoever of Tory Wilson or Dormery. So that's obviously a, a bonus. And yeah, I, the, I do feel bad about it though. Yeah, but it's it's. I'm saying that due to the angle, not because of the women themselves. Yeah. Uh, so that's going to wrap us up for this edition. So episode 32. I I can't say just in terms of like I've had a little bit of a look into it, but the one thing that's caught my eye. If you're ready for this, Rob. Well, Main event match. Team Angle versus Chris Benoit on Edge. With a number one contendership for the Tag Team Championships. They like go it. 20 minutes. Yeah, that sounds that sounds good, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I want to see how good this is. Because I imagine it's going to be great. But I just want to just see how good it is. So hopefully you guys are looking forward to that one as much as we are. And all we have to do now is just throw a few plugs your way before we sail off into the sunset. So obviously we've mentioned the Patreon earlier. So if you are at the $10 tier or above, you'll be able to get access to all the extra episodes of the Paul Heyman Smackdown podcast, which are our pay-per-view reviews. Most recent one, of course, being the Royal Rumble 2003. We have two more of them coming up, which will be No Way Out 2003 and WrestleMania 19. So hopefully we'll check, check out those ones with us. There's, of course, the Redbubble and Tee Public shops as well. If you can't support us financially in a consistent basis through the Patreon, then maybe you want to splash a bit of cash on some Smart Cat Moment merchandise. So you can check that stuff out on there. Uh, if you can't support us financially, obviously we understand that times are tight, especially in these uh, times. So otherwise you can help us is by paying us in likes and shares by going onto the website, sharing and liking all the articles, leaving comments, getting engaged with everything on there. Um, join us on Facebook and on Twitter at Smart Count Moments and join the Megamaniacs at facebook.com slash group slash the Megamaniacs for all the talk with like-minded wrestling fans. You can join us for like pay-per-view, live uh, commenting and stuff like that on there as well. So that's great. On the blue brand side of things, on Tony's uh, end with Fanboys Anonymous, where you can check out all the geek culture stuff, anything about movies and TV shows, uh, we alluded to it earlier, but we're soon doing a podcast series on there, recapping all of the James Bond movies. So hopefully you enjoy that as well. If you're interested in that series, then definitely check out the podcast that we put out on those. Uh, Rob, one of the busiest men in wrestling. I am. So this comes to you on Saturday, January 23rd. I will be on the WrestleZone Smackdown Double Down podcast every Saturday going forward because I don't do enough. Um, I'm on Fightful every day of the week. Next weekend is a big one. We've got the Royal Rumble. We've got a 24-hour GCW stream. The days before the Royal Rumble. So come and have fun and join in on all the wrestling fun. Follow me on Twitter at DudeFelice. And I thank you for your time. Yeah, obviously, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Wigmeister14. And yeah, thank you very much for your time in listening to this edition, and we will see you again next week. But for now, this has been another Smart Count moment, and we are being counted out. 